Welcome back, everybody. We're going to be in Colossians today. Go ahead and get your Bibles out. Turn to Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 through 23. We've been, a, we've been chapter 2 a long time, but we're going to finish it today. And hopefully you've gained a little bit out of this, uh, what I think is an important pas- passage of Scripture in, in this one particular letter by the Apostle Paul. As you're turning, um, this is going to be our last message in Colossians for about a month. All right, so we're going to take a, a month pause uh, as we prepare uh, to celebrate Easter. And so next week, I'll begin a three-part series. Uh, next Sunday's Palm Sunday, uh, that, um, that Sunday that commemorates Jesus um, coming into Jerusalem. He had the you know, people uh, laying down palm branches on the ground and their cloaks and everything. And they said, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so Palm Sunday commemorates that event. And then we'll celebrate Good Friday on the 18th right here, 7 o'clock service, really about 30 to 45 minutes uh, of, of just reminding ourselves what happened on the, the, the night that Jesus died. And then, of course, we'll be here uh, in this same location on Easter two days, two days later. The week after that, the last week of April, we celebrate our one-year anniversary. And uh, we'll have a guest speaker here. Uh, uh, a friend of mine in the Acts 29 network will come and and bless us. And then I'm going to take advantage of, of us being a, a one-year-old baby church to uh, take a couple weeks and talk about, um, just reflect a little bit on who, where we've been and um, vision cast a little bit for what I think God has for us in the year ahead. So I look forward to that. So uh, if you're in Colossians, we're going to read verse 16 through 23 together. Go ahead and finish this chapter out. Let's read together, starting at verse 16. Here we go. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or whether you with with regard to a festival or new moon or Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referencing the things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This is God's word. Let's uh, pause and pray together. Lord, we're grateful for this opportunity to gather as your church, and uh, we're thankful for a new day. We thank you for new mercy and, and grace. We absolutely need it. When the sun comes up, we're reminded that we need you to wake us from our slumber. We thank you for um, just this opportunity to dive into your word. And uh, God, we pray that you would give us uh, the eyes to see all that you would have for us. From this passage of, uh, of scripture, the Apostle Paul talking to the Colossians really about religion here. And more than that, Lord God, we pray that you would bring it to our present day and help us to apply it to ourselves. That we might see ourselves that we might hear something that might be for us individually and corporately. And uh, God, give us ears to hear. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Y'all, did y'all say amen? 
I'm going to pretend like I heard you. Y'all didn't really say amen. It was like, mm. What do you think of when you hear the word religion? What do you think of when you hear the word religion? If someone called you religious, would that for you be a good thing or a bad thing? I would tell you that this word religion and being called religious as of late has uh, it's 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 taken a bad turn. Um, The word in itself uh, doesn't suggest anything bad. It simply means a system of faith or worship. It's you expressing systematically what you believe. There aren't a lot of uh, occasions where this actual word is used in Scripture. The, the word religion doesn't appear in the Old Testament at all. Um, most notably, uh, many of you will recall the, the words of the Apostle James in the first chapter where he says, uh, pure and undefiled religion is, is this. It's taking care of widows and orphans in their plight. The suggestion there is when you're doing those things, when you're acting out on your faith, when you're practicing your, uh, your faith, you are exhibiting good religion. Other than that, we don't see it a lot. But I would tell you that today in, in the world that we live in, to say the word religion, to say that you are religious has a negative connotation to it. It's not looked upon very lightly. Interestingly, the word religion is what most people outside of the church would say that Christianity is all about. If you're a Christian, you're all about religion. And what people outside of the church mean by that is that you're about rules and rituals, standards of behavior, cleaning yourself up. They see the face of religion as pastors, priests, and the institutions in which they oversee. Some would even connect this idea of religion to politics or social Uh, social outlets, social causes, and really a whole host of other things that we would consider as church people negative. Paul addresses religion in our text today. He doesn't say the word religion, but really what he's talking about um, is the practice of religion. And Paul uses it also in a negative, a negative light. In fact, he doesn't just talk about religion in general. He talks about legalism. Okay. He's talking about religion uh, as a, a, legal, a legalistic endeavor. He labels it as a threat to everything he's talked about thus far in Colossians, primarily the, the preeminence of Jesus, the, the, um, the fact that the gospel is central to all that you should know and do in regards to being a Christian. And he gives the Colossians three warnings in regards to this idea of, of religion. And that really is the theme of my sermon today, warnings about religion. And so as we jump into the text, uh, right off the bat, Paul says, the first warning is this. He says, don't let them judge you. Don't let them, them being the false teachers that were influencing the people, at, uh, the, the people in Colossae, don't let them judge you because here it is. Religious people judge others by their own rules. Perhaps you've seen somebody that does that. Religious people judge others by their own rules. Verse 16, he says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Anytime we get the word therefore, you got to look and see what it's there for. Right. And so Paul is, is looking back and he's saying all the truth that I've shared with you in regard to who 
God is, what he's done through the person of Jesus and who Jesus has called you to be. In light of all of that, I got three warnings for you. In the first one, he says, don't let false teachers, don't let them judge you. I think what's going on here in Colossians is that these false teachers were insisting that the Colossians abstain from certain foods and drinks. And this is very interesting because I think there's a couple different types of people that are influencing the Colossians here. In the, New, in the Old Testament, of course, they had a lot of dietary restrictions. There was a food that in the Old Testament, in the Mosaic Law, there was things that they were supposed to not eat, right? There were no... Old Testament prohibitions on drink. Don't know if you knew, you knew that. They, they, they weren't told, don't drink this. And so possibly these weren't just Jews who were trying to uh, insert their own religious beliefs to the Colossians. These were maybe Jews, but they had an extra added religion or religion, religi- religiosity about themselves that they, they, they added on not just don't eat the Old Testament prohibitions of, of food, that kind of right, but here's some drink that you also should not partake in. And, and uh, primarily, they're talking about you know, the flesh of an animal, don't eat meat, and then they're talking about don't, don't drink wine, kind of like a Nazarite vow, so to speak. They were asserting pressure on the Colossians to live a life of abstinence suggesting that it would make God love them more and that a life of asceticism, that is a life of of denial, of self-denial, you choosing to withhold from from partaking in some things would lead to a greater spiritual experience. All right, we we read this and in, in, in some ways we don't identify with it because, well, I don't, you know, the Old Testament, I don't have to follow a lot of that, especially the dietary restrictions. You know, there's there's precedence in both the Old Testament with Noah and the New Testament that that, uh, that remember the Paul uh, Peter sitting on top of the roof. Uh, the Holy Spirit shows him this image of unclean animals. He's, you know, he's like, I can't eat that, Lord. And uh, the Holy Spirit keeps coming back and saying, Peter, kill and eat. So all those restrictions about what you eat can go away. And we read this and say, well, that can't be talking to me. But I mean, if you if you think a little bit, I, perhaps you can recall uh, a situation, an instance, maybe you heard it from afar, uh, something that happened around you, to you, that um, you've seen people put rules on you about what you eat and what you drink. Does that happen in the church world? Absolutely. You know it does. There are Christians in churches that judge people based upon um, particularly what they drink. Right? Okay. Churches have been known not to just have prohibitions about drink, but, you know, the old, the old school church, you couldn't drink, you couldn't smoke, no sex outside of marriage. Not only that, don't wear certain clothes, not just to church, but ever. I went to a church when I was a, a brand new Christian. Um, I didn't realize what was going on. I was just going to church because someone recommended I go to this church. Um, the people there didn't watch TV. The women didn't wear makeup. The women didn't wear pants. And, um, you know, I, I, I grew tremendously in this environment, but I didn't, I didn't even know that I was in a brand of legalism until I got out of it and went to a different church and experienced a little bit something different. 
So this same kind of thing happens in our church today. There's some churches that say you're not supposed to dance. You're not supposed to listen to certain kinds of music. Y'all, y'all ever heard any of this stuff? Some of you, have you all ever submitted to some of this stuff? Some of y'all, yeah, absolutely, just like me. And some of it is, is knowing, some of it is unknowing. Uh, there are some churches that have traditions, spoken and unspoken, that if you celebrate Halloween, if you take your kids out trick-or-treating, you are, I mean, you're just, you might as well be a Satan worshiper. I might be stepping on some toes right here, but I, that, that happens. Um, here's what we have to ask ourselves. Is it, is it OK to have convictions about things, about drinking, about the music I listen to, about observing Halloween, about the clothes I wear? Can we have convictions, personal convictions? I won't do this. I'll do that. I won't do this. I'll do that. I would say absolutely. We're, we're, we're OK having personal convictions in regards to those things. But I think it's as soon as you start making judgments and rules for other people where the Bible is silent, or the Bible doesn't, uh, the Bible gives freedom, then what you have done is you've entered into legalism. And this is what's going on in Colossae. Now, in this, in this text here, along with food and drink, Paul mentions the observance of holy days uh, associated likely with the Jewish calendar. And the words here suggest uh, annual things that you're supposed to do, festivals, monthly things that you're supposed to do, and, and weekly things like the Sabbath that they're supposed to observe. In other words, um, the pressure was for the Colossians to adhere to times of worship that someone else felt were sacred to them. In verse 17, Paul continues this thought. He says, the, you know, these things, these are shadow. They're a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. You ever seen a shadow? OK, a shadow is an image um, projected on the ground by a luminary, the sun, the moon, some kind of a light. Like when the worship team was up here, the lights cast a shadow on them and some of the equipment up here. So a shadow is uh, an image of something, but it's not the real thing. And so this is what Paul is saying. All of these rules, some of them may be right. Some of them may be wrong, but they're just a shadow. They aren't the real thing. The, the reality is Jesus. And so you should be looking to him in terms of the rules that you live by in your life. When you impose your own standards on people about what is what is or isn't right, your rules start to outstrip Jesus of his authority in other people's lives. Paul says, don't feel compelled to obey moralistic religious rules from other people, that, especially if they aren't biblical. That takes your eyes off Jesus. And so here's the complexity of, of this particular passage in a church like ours. Now look around real quick. We don't have a lot of people here today, but uh, where is everybody? Yeah. <laughs> Look around. OK, we're a diverse crowd. We're diverse generationally. We're diverse ethnically. We're diverse in our age. We're diverse probably in the types and kinds of churches that we've come from. There's, there's some of here that have been that grew up in church. OK, from like childhood on. There's some of us that, that entered the church world like around high school, college age. And there's some that later in your adult life, you've you've come to faith. And so we have various perspectives on what it means to follow rules and be judged about the things that you do in regards to your faith. And so some of you in this room deeply need to hear what the scripture says because you've been abused like this. You need to hear the scripture say that you don't have to follow moralistic, legalistic rules that are extra biblical. 
You don't have to allow someone to put pressure on you to conform to their man-made rules for your life. That's what Paul is, is. He's freeing you from that. Some of you need to hear that. You don't have to be bound by legalism. You don't have to you don't have to succumb to the ways that your your old churches or the ways that your old environments told it told you that you can't do this. If the Bible doesn't say you can't do this. You guys with me? Paul is. You know, he's refuting these extra biblical rules. And so don't feel bound by them. Now, there's the other side of this issue, though. There's some of you that you, you read a little bit of your Bible. You've read Galatians 5, 1. It says, it was for freedom that Christ has set me free. So don't, don't, don't anymore be bound by a yoke of slavery. So you've cast off all restraint, right? <laughs> and you, you're doing anything and everything. You, give me another one. Give me another one. Let's, let's go have a ball. And you need to hear, you need to hear this, too. Because there's the other side. You understand your Christian freedom as a license to do whatever you want. But that really is isn't what the Bible is saying as well, because when you begin to use your freedom in ways uh, that are unloving towards others, you end up hurting people as well. I like what Galatians five says. You know, Paul starts out with this idea of freedom in Galatians five and Galatians is all about legalism. OK. And then he resolves this this idea of freedom in verse 13. He says, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. We are called to be free. He says, but you can be so free that you are you aren't acting out of your righteous self, but you're acting out of your unrighteous self. That that flesh, that part of you that God is is yet still killing by his by the sanctification process. And he says that this is what you should be doing. You should be loving each other by serving each other. And I tell you, sometimes serving is not easy. Sometimes to serve someone else, you have to give up even the things that you are entitled to. There's a there's a free tip for those of you who are married. Right. Galatians says you're free, but you're bound to, to, to God to serve one another in love. How can we apply this? Um, let's just take the let's just take alcohol, because that's you know, we don't get hung up on food. I mean, y'all, we eat all kinds of food. Right. But the alcohol thing does, does trip us up a little bit. And we're a diverse crowd. And like we have many different thoughts about drink, strong drink and partaking in that. And so um, I know some of y'all and I know some of you like beer. Not only do you like it, you brew it, you offer it. I've tasted some of it and it's, it was good. <laughs> Absolutely. So you know where I stand. All right. <laughs> I'll say amen to that. All right. Some of you like beer. And you have no issues drinking in moderation. Of course, the scripture says to, to get drunk is a sin. All right. So you have to acknowledge if the Bible says it, then and you do it, then you're 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 out of tolerance. You have to you, you drink and see no issues for yourselves and for others. But on the other side, there are likely people here who not only don't drink, but they have an issue with people who do. And they and it's not necessarily because of their legalistic lifestyle. It perhaps is because they've been they've been delivered out of alcoholism or it's because they have someone in their family that struggled with this. They have a history of it in in their family line. And they know that if if they give into it, it may lead them to to succumbing to alcohol as well. 
They, they know that tendency in their family. And so they consider it a weakness in their their own lives. that They've decided to refrain from. And that is absolutely the right thing to do. And so how do how do we how do we compromise? How do we come to come to love each other, to serve each other in love? I think, well, the, the, the bottom line is we have to talk to each other. We have to communicate. The Bible would tell us the way that we serve each other in love when we have a diverse group is that we come together and we talk to talk to each other. And that's why I love our community groups. This is this is one of the things that you get to do in community group. You get to you get to be um, you get to rub shoulders with people who aren't quite like you. That's that's the purpose of it, who come from all different walks of life and who have different levels and kinds of experiences. And you have to work out these tough issues in love by serving each other. And sometimes that means not doing what you're free to do when that person is around. But sometimes it means having having the opportunity to explain why it's okay for you to 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 partake of alcohol with the person that doesn't like it and doesn't like you when they do it. The Bible says that we have to come together and talk about it. This is the Bible stance. Romans 14, 3. Let no one, let no one who eats despise one who abstains and let no one who abstains pass judgment on one who eats for God has welcomed him. I think this, this is specifically applied to eating. This is the, the passage where Paul talks about is it okay to eat meat offered to idols? And, and then he resolves and says, you know, an idol is nothing. But, but if it's going to bother you, then don't eat, okay? Don't, don't hurt somebody else by eating something they think is, is offered to an idol. And so here, the, the idea is, is pretty much the same. And this is not just talking about um, eating food, but it, it, can be, it can be applied to alcohol. It can be applied to a whole host of issues. It's okay for people to have differing convictions and yet not have an issue, uh, the, the, not, if the Bible doesn't draw a line on it, then they have to, the opportunity to decide for themselves whether it's a personal conviction or not, is really what I'm trying to say. What this text here is saying is religious people judge others by their man-made traditions and their rules, and this is a sin. We're to serve one another in love. We should not harm or ostracize people by our own rules or by our freedom. Both of those are wrong. So here's a question for you. Do you measure people by some standards that the Bible doesn't? Have you ever done that? Are you doing it now? If so, listen to the Holy Spirit and he's probably telling you to stop. What rules do you have that help you decide what really is spiritual? Not just what you think, but what the what the Bible, what the Bible says about it. Do you have rules that you are prone to measure people by in regards to what they eat and what they drink? Are are there religious impulses in your heart? This is what Paul is saying. He's saying rules about eating and drinking are shadows. They're just images on the ground, but the substance belongs to Christ. Second warning is this. He says, don't let them disqualify you. Don't let the false teachers disqualify you. Why? Because religious people get dogmatic. They create principles out of secondary issues when they should not have. Verse 18 says this. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. This word 
Disqualify means to condemn or, or judge. Um, let me give you a picture of it. All right, we just started baseball season. Um, the Nats, are, their home opener just started. They've lost to the Braves twice. Come on now. They were, they were three and one. They come home and start losing. Um, and so this idea of disqualifying would be an umpire who's hired by the major, uh, the major League Baseball to come and officiate the game. And what this umpire does, instead of following the rules for Major League Baseball, he decides he's going to judge whether a batter is out based upon his own standard. He's going to disqualify a batter based upon what he has in his mind, not upon the, pre, the, the prearranged conditions and standards for Major League Baseball. This is what Paul's talking about here. Don't let someone disqualify you based upon what they think is right. Don't let an umpire come in and, and judge you, call you out when by, by, God's, by this, the standard, okay, the Bible that we read, doesn't disqualify you based upon what you, what you do. And then Paul mentions five, five things that the false teachers here were insisting that the Colossians needed to do to meet these false teachers' spiritual standard. And the first thing he says is asceticism. And that word sounds strange to, to us when we say it, but I would tell you, as you look into what it is, Many of us practice, uh, we, we have ascetic practices in our, in our lives, and I would tell you, you've seen this all over the place. Um, this time of year, one of the most popular ascetic practices is fasting. We're entering the Easter season, 40 days before Easter, we begin Lent, right? And there's probably at least a third of you here that have given up something, for Lent, in commemoration of your worship toward God, you've given up perhaps meat. Catholics give up um, meat except for fish. You might give up uh, drinking coffee. You might give up um, chocolate, God forbid, or Abby's like, absolutely not. Uh, you can give up any number of things, and you do it as you're orienting your heart toward God. Here's some other things uh, that are ascetic practices. Um, deny and sleep. There's some. It, mostly in monastical communities, monks that would uh, practice this, uh, just lessening my amount of sleep so that I can spend more time in the scriptures and meditating and living a contemplative life. Celibacy. Celibacy is asceticism. So those of you that are single that should be living uh, a celibate lifestyle, um, restraining yourself from sexual intimacy before marriage would be considered ascetic. How, did you know that? That's what you're doing. I hope you're doing it. Um, living in poverty. Mother Teresa um, chose an ascetic lifestyle. She lived in poverty. Um, and she's known well for that. Of course, uh, monks, those living in monastic communities, give up all their worldly goods. They kind of separate themselves from society a bit. And, and they practice really a, a contemplative lifestyle. These and several other Forms of, uh, of, of um, bodily rigor and self-deprivation. Of course, asceticism can get to an extreme where um, you're actually punishing your body in, in ways. I think of, um, remember X-Men? They had that, I don't, I don't even remember the figure, but he's like green or dark all over, and he has all these, they, they look like whelps, um, but they're kind of like tattoos, okay? That, he was an ascetic, okay? He, he did that to... To 
you know, it was like a self-denial kind of thing in, in his worship toward the, the God that he served. All right, Paul says uh, angels, uh, worship of angels next. Uh, this is kind of ambiguous. Scholars have no idea what Paul is talking about here. But uh, I like what Sam Storms in his book, um, um, A Devotion on the, the Book of Colossians, says. He says, there can be an excessive and inappropriate preoccupation with angels and their interaction with human beings as agents of God. So much so that we we focus so much on angels, on who they are and their interaction with us, that it takes our eyes off of Jesus. And I think that's what Paul is, is accurately saying here. Then he goes on to visions. The implication here is that, you know, there's false teachers that were basing their super spirituality on the fact that they, they saw visions. They had all kinds of visions that, that God was supposedly giving them. And then lastly, he says, um, it ends up having, uh, lending to a sensuous mind. Um, it, he asked these words. It's uh, puffed up without reason because of a sensuous mind. And here he's, he's talking about uh, there's things going on in your life uh, spiritually that you just become arrogant because you think you're super spiritual based upon uh, these manifestations of God in your life. Uh, the words here, sensuous mind, literally read the mind of the flesh. And so what I think he's talking about here is it's possible to be engaged in all kinds of spiritual activities, but to be doing them or the manifestation that's happening is actually um, coming from um, from they're driven by your own flesh. And so, I mean, what's Paul's point here? Paul's point is not that all of these things here in, in verse 18 are are bad. He's not saying that asceticism and. And worshiping along with angels are are bad. He's not saying any of that. He's saying that when we when we focus on these things and they get our eyes off Jesus, then what we've done is we've taken a secondary thing, a thing that we can't call unimportant. But we've we've um, we've taken something that is a secondary issue and we've elevated it to an importance that surpasses the importance of Jesus in our life. That's his point here. And that really is his concern. These experiences should not be qualifiers for true spiritual uh, discipleship, nor should we label ourselves as as being super spiritual because we practice these things. I would tell you asceticism in itself is not bad. And, you know, although the word sounds strange, um, hopefully with the examples I gave, you realize that some of you practice uh, asceticism in your lives and those things aren't bad. And if you think it sounds weird, likely it's because you've never given thought to not letting your body control you. You know, one of the, one of the great benefits of fasting, I, admittedly, I don't fast a lot, but when I have fasted, the thing that fasting does for you is it reminds you of how much your body can be in control. Your body craves and lusts for things, and oftentimes we just give it what it wants. I need some cookies. I'm going to get some cookies. I need some, mine's ice cream, right? I got some vanilla ice cream from Trader Joe's in my refrigerator right now, and because I'm talking about food, I want it, right? Your body wants a cigarette. I'm going to get a cigarette. My body wants some beer. I'm going to get some beer. My body wants sex. I'm going to go have some sex, all right? We feed our bodies, and this ascetic lifestyle is appropriate for many of us because it reminds us that everything that our body craves and lusts for, sometimes we should just say, no, you can't have that. That was for free. 
This is, this is what Paul says. He, 1 Corinthians 9, 27, he says, I, I beat my body to make it a slave so it won't disqualify me from getting this ultimate prize that God has for me. Paul lived an ascetic lifestyle. Along with that, you know, this idea of worshiping, worshiping angels, obviously we don't understand what he was saying with that. That can't be a right thing that we worship angels. But there's some unique things that the Bible says about our relationship with angels. The Bible says that we, uh, we entertain angels unaware, so they're around us, possibly even here in our, in our worship today. They just show up out of the, out of the blue, um, aiding God in, in bringing about the, the coming of his kingdom alongside the church. We will worship with angels forever. So it's not a bad thing to be able to worship with angels. God is the one that gives visions. So when you have a vision, it's coming from God. Paul had visions. He shared it with us. Peter had visions, and he shared them as a characteristic of the Holy, the Holy Spirit's work in your life. So none of these things were bad things. Paul's point was religious people have a tendency to get dogmatic, to create principles out of secondary issues. And this leads to developing arrogance in regards to your convictions. And you put those convictions on other people in pride, thinking that what's good for you is good for them. And that would be sin. Verse 19, he says, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knitted together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that's from God. This verse here describes the, the principal issue that Paul had with the false teachers. The principal issue, and that was they were not holding fast to the head. Of course, he's talking about Jesus. They were influencing the Colossians to to uh, to do these same things that they were doing. Follow my rules. Obey my regulations. This is how you should worship like I'm doing it, because if you do these things, you'll be spiritual like me. But Paul is saying. It takes your eyes away from the head. He said, in fact, if you're a part of the body, you're connected to the head, which is Jesus. And Jesus is controlling everything in your life. But not only that, if you're a part of the body, you're connected to this thing called the church. And, and here is a, this is why I think this is important. This is, this is another issue that's an implication of the passage he's talking about. I think this is important for us. You know, a lot of times we have this perspective of, of uh, my religion is my, my religion, all right? It's, it's for me. I'm going to exercise it by myself. I don't really need anybody else. Me and Jesus, all right? Me, my Bible, and Jesus, and anybody else can just move off to the side and, and not bother me. What he's pointing out here is that we, we come under the authority of Jesus, the head, and we're a part of the body, which means we, the, the, the church, the local church, the community of faith is important to us. It's important for a number of reasons. Firstly, it's important for us in terms of our growth and maturity. If we are part of the body, if, if we are supposed to be a part of the body and we're, we're disconnected, I mean, how is my hand going to grow off by itself, disconnected? It's just going to wither and die, right? If I'm a toe, my toe is not going to operate, do what it's supposed to do, separate it from, from my foot, which is connected to my ankle, which is connected to the rest of my leg. And so he's saying this idea of community is integral to this idea of you staying connected to Jesus, but also being a part of God's family and growing in spiritual maturity. This really is the same idea that Paul gives us in Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. He says, so then you're no longer strangers and aliens, 
but your fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. In him, the whole structure being joined together grows in a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also were being built together in a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. He's talking about the church. He's talking about our part in the body connected to the head, which is Jesus. So the question that I have for you is, what secondary issues are you dogmatic about? What secondary principle have you elevated to a primary concern that that may blind you and those around you from the God that you're serving, from Jesus? What are you engaged by, excited about, that takes the focus off of Jesus and what it means to be his people? What things are you believing and practicing that, while not unimportant, are at best secondary and that have the potential to get others off track? Paul is warning us about those things. And so his first warning is don't let religious people judge you by their rules. His second warning is don't let religious people disqualify you about secondary issues. This third point is not a, he didn't he didn't present it as a warning. He gives it as a rhetorical question. And he says this, don't don't let them entrust you. And the question would be, if with Christ you died, and he goes on in verse 20, he says, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These, he says, have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But they are of no value. Say no value. No value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. It's an important passage for us. And this is really where he he culminates this idea. And then he he turns the corner in chapter three and goes in a different direction. Paul reminds the Colossians of their union here with Jesus. He says, if, if you've died with Christ, and of course, this idea of union is, is important in Paul's theology. And with that, he's explaining to us this, um, you know, this uh, interrelationship that we have with, with Jesus that, that should not be separated. It's, it's your legal right to be in relationship with him, but it's also the the privilege of fellowship with him, your union with Jesus. And then he asked this rhetorical question, if you've died with Christ. And those words, of course, are pregnant with everything that he said, specifically in verse 11 through 15. He reminds the Colossians, you you know, you were circumcised. He's talking about your conversion. When, When you became a Christian, God moved on you by the Holy Spirit. He gave you the Holy Spirit and that Holy Spirit. He he defeated your sinful nature, not with not by cutting off a a, a piece of flesh, but by circumcising your body of flesh, completely defeating the sinful nature. And of course, that sin is worked out of you in the process of sanctification. Then he goes on to say, God has taken your dead soul and, and turned you alive. He's defeated Satan on your behalf so that he he's nullified his work. You don't have to um, you don't have to succumb to Satan and his his demons and his pranks in your life. He's made you free. And so that this phrase here, you've died with Christ, is pregnant with all these ideas that he's fleshed out in the beginning part of chapter two. And so what uh, 
what these rules represent that, that he's laying out here, that Paul's laying out in regards to the Colossians, are, are perhaps some of the most subtle yet harmful religious and, and legalistic ideas that we could fall prey to. And his, exor- his uh, exhortation to us is, is rules like these, these external boundaries that people are trying to, they're trying to, they've created a fence and they're trying to get you to stay in the midst of that fence with these rules and regulations. He's saying they have an appearance of wisdom. They look right because if I do them, I go to church, I'm a nice boy, I do right, I try to be right, then I look good on the outside, I look, out, I look upright, I look outstanding. Uh, at least religious people will look at me and and think that life is okay with me, but he says they have no value. No, not, not a little bit of value. He says, he says these man-made rules have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. In other words, they have no value in helping you curb your temptation. They have no value in, in actually helping you overcome your sinful tendencies. They have no value in helping you become a good Christian. All right. So you hear those words and say, well, all right, Jeff, what, what makes me what helps me to stop sinning, to have not have temptation um, to be a better Christian? Here's the bad part. All right. Paul resolves that in chapter three. We're not going to talk about chapter three today. We're going to talk about it a month from now. Don't you hate me? This is like a, it's like one of those nighttime dramas. And you get to this point. Oh, I can't believe it's going to he's going to like end it right there. This is where Paul ends it. I'm just doing what Paul does. Actually, Paul, you know, Paul's writing a letter. Of course, the letter doesn't stop right there. He just keeps on going. He keeps on flowing through. So if you want, peek on over into chapter three. See, he gives a simple, he gives a simple answer to this idea of, of stopping the indulgence of our flesh. But I'm going to resolve this here particular passage in a different way. I'm going to turn it inward because, you know, a lot of times we could read this Colossians passage and, we, you know, we see... We see other people in this. We see the life that we used to live. We see the old church that we used to go to. Um, we see things that maybe God has delivered us from, but we don't necessarily see ourselves a lot of times in, as being the religious one, as being the legalistic one, where I think it's appropriate that we at least turn the spotlight in for a couple seconds and see what we can see for ourselves in this passage. And I think it would be appropriate for us to do that. And so what happens when we try to force our rules on others. That's the, that's the thing you should ask yourself. Say you are a false teacher and you've come in and you've got this group of people. Some of them are your friends, some of them you don't know, and you have a certain way of living and you think your way of living is right. It's biblical. And you feel led to share how you live with other people. And so what happens when you force your rules or regulations on other people? And I think the answer is, is we enslave those people that we're you know, the, the, the targets of uh, that are in front of us, we enslave them by our rules. It's like you know, think of this. I don't know if this will make sense to you. It's like you got a piece of metal in your hand. It's not aluminum. It's a little bit sturdier than metal. Uh, when you try and bend it, one of two things is going to happen. Either you're going to bend it and bend it so much that it breaks if you're strong enough to break metal or it's going to snap back into form. And really, that is what the picture Paul is giving us. When we, when we give people rules and regulations to live by that are really ours to live by, they're, they're our convictions, not someone else's convictions, and the Bible doesn't prescribe what we're supposed to do, then what we're doing is we are putting on them like a piece of metal, 
um, rules that are either going to bend them for a little bit. They might succumb to your rules and regulations and do them half-heartedly. But eventually, they're either going to break, they're going to fall apart from it because they can't do it all. They can't do it to your standard. Or when you're not in the picture anymore and you're not putting pressure on them to conform, they're going to, they're going to bounce back up and go back to form. Without pressure, everything goes back to form. And so legalism is enslaving because it's like trying to bend someone's heart according to our will. And the way, we, the way that we try to bend someone's heart to our will is in our pride, we think that those rules that are right for us are right for everybody. And then we pressure people and we, we bring them to a point of fear to succumb to our rules. And I would tell you all that is, is manipulation. That's what legalism does. And so what are the ways that you're legalistic? I know most of you all probably don't think you're legalistic, but I would tell you, as I've been preparing this, I, I just know there's ways that I am legalistic. And this is how it plays out in my life. Three quick examples. The first is oftentimes legalistic people. Um, I, let me put, let me make it personal. Oftentimes I have I extend a lot of grace to people that are that I don't know very well. I just I, I have grace for them in their sin and ways that they do the things that they do. I, it's, it's OK. I can live with them. But those people that are in my inner circle, those people that are closest to me, family, really close friends, I, I can I can be legalistic and I can be legalistic in this way. I, I, I think about all the things that I'm good at. Uh, I have a lot of discipline. It's not just from military training. It's I just grew up with just doing, you know, if someone tells me to do something, I, I, I do it. If I'm supposed to get up at eight, I get up at eight. Um, you know, I, I just I'm just a very disciplined person. But I take what's a personality trait for me and I apply it to other people. And if they're not as disciplined as me, then, of, of course, first I try to apply a little pressure to get them to conform. And then I might say something in a very condescending way to, you know, to bend them to my will. And they might do it for a little bit. But just like that piece of piece of metal, they're either going to break because they can't they can't satisfy satisfy just rules. Or when I'm not pressuring them anymore, they're going to go back to whatever they were doing. And oftentimes you do that, too. Parents, you do it to your kids. You do it to your kids all the time. Um, Let me give you an example. Um, Johnny, don't lie because lying is not good. God doesn't like lying. Okay, that doesn't work. That, that doesn't usually work with a kid. All right, tell them God don't like lying. That's not going to work quite yet with them. God is still working on their hearts. And so you go, uh, you go to the, the next level and say, Johnny, if you don't stop lying, you're going to get in trouble. All right, and Johnny might, he might pick up his act a little bit and not lie, at least not lie in front of you from the threat of, of, of not getting in trouble. How about this? You better watch out. You better not cry. You better, I'm getting, better not pout, I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. He's making a list. He's checking it twice. He's going to find out who's naughty or nice. He sees you when you're sleeping and when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good, so be good. We, we hold this nice little precious holiday over our kids to conform them to behavior. And that's a form of legalism, folks. That's just the first way. Those of you who are married, you do the same things to your spouses. You do the same things without the song. The second way that uh, I'm legalistic, and you are too, is um, 
is, is, is this. I, I'm legalistic towards those who are legal. I'm, I'm, I'm a legalist of those who are legalistic. And so um, I see someone that, you know, they aren't even, they don't, they don't even hold it back. They, they, they make known that, you know, they have issues with conforming to rules and they want everybody to conform to their rules. They don't try to hide it. Okay. And, and what I'll do is I won't say it. I won't say it out loud, but what I'll think is that poor person, they're so bound up with, with, their, with their rules for themselves. They, they aren't free like I am. They don't know that, that God has given them grace and, and freedom to live their life. And so I end up on the outside, you know, trying to be nice to that person. But on the inside, I'm judging them because they choose not to drink or, or they, they wear certain clothes or don't think they're supposed to wear certain clothes or they don't do a certain thing on a certain day. They, they follow, you know, th- these things that are okay. To, to, to follow if, if there are convictions for ourselves. I won't do it out loud, but sometimes I'll do it in my mind. Thirdly, and I say this because we're a young congregation, and I know I've done this, and I'll be quick about it. Um, you know, a lot of times church, planners, church plants uh, attract people who are coming out of other churches. At this point, we've grown more from you know, transfer growth than, than, than new converts. And a lot of times, uh, people coming to a, a new church from another church are coming because of the, whatever they thought were bad experiences in their other church. A lot of times, well, they, they did this and I didn't, li- didn't like it, or they were really strict. They had these rules, and I didn't like those rules. Those of you that grew up um, in the church, then likely uh, you're in rebellion because you had all these, all these things that your parents or the church that you grew up in required you to do, and now that you're older, out on your own, uh, you're in open rebellion against those kinds of things. When I would tell you, those people that, that had those rules, yes, they might have been a little legalistic, but the truth is, you know, honestly, they love God at least as much as you do, probably even more. And so you just have to have grace for them. We're supposed to love each other, serve each other in love. Um, so what's the, what's, the, what's the key? What's the key to being free from religion and legalism? All right, the... The ultimate answer is always Jesus, right? It's, it's, it is Jesus. That's the answer. He, he brings us good news. Ultimately, Paul points us back to Jesus in this passage. Let's look at uh, verse 17 again. Verse 17 says this. These are a shadow. They're an image on the ground cast by a luminary. It's not the real thing, but the substance, the real deal, the reality of of what we're supposed to be conforming ourselves, conforming our lives to, is actually Jesus Christ. Paul challenges us here not to focus on the rules, but the work of Jesus. Jesus came into the world. Jesus died on the cross. Jesus rose from the grave to free those like us who, through pride and fear of legalism, would try to manipulate and enslave other people. Jesus died to free us from ourselves, from all those ways that that we enslave ourselves by our own rules. And so when we come to Jesus, he gives us grace to be different people. In fact, you you can't even change yourself without change coming from the inside. And only the Holy Spirit can do that. Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit. And so the religion by God's grace gets worked out of us. We become people who don't judge in accordance with our own rules. We become people who, who don't, um, we don't, we don't disqualify people based upon our own set of standards. But the standard becomes God's standard in his gospel. And I think that's what God would have us to do. 
when the gospel is working among us, we won't, be ens- we won't enslave ourselves and we won't enslave others. That's what Paul has called us to. We'll see religion and legalism for what it is and for what it does. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that even if we don't see it, there are in many ways in our lives, for all those who are here, that we hold on to religion in a negative way, that we are even legalistic. And Lord, I pray that you give us eyes to see where we judge people by our own man-made moralistic rules, where we disqualify folks for not succumbing to what we think is right based upon our own convictions. Lord, we repent. I pray for us as a congregation that you would help us to serve each other in love. That we would have open, free conversations about our convictions, about what we're free to do, about what we're not free to do, and that we would love each other. And sometimes that, that will look like not doing that thing that you're free to do in front of those who uh, are weak in regards to that. Help us in this regard, we pray. Lord, we thank you for your gospel that says, I don't have to conform to someone else's rules or regulations to feel accepted. The gospel says, I'm accepted because of not what I do, but because what of what God has done in Jesus. What has he done? He's lived the perfect life that I couldn't live. He's gone to the cross, the cross that I deserved. He's died the death that was for me. And because you received him as a perfect sacrifice, you brought him to life. And because he lives, when I put my faith in him, so do I. So God, bring us to life by your gospel. Remind us Remind us ever so often, and you, you accept us. We don't have to do anything to earn it, to gain it. You accept us because you love us. You accept us, you love us because of Jesus. Thank you for Jesus. And it's in his great name that we pray.